Happy holidays and welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with me is the woman who, fortunately for me, has never refused to record a show. <laughs> it's Lydia. I never refused. I'm glad you didn't say anything. I was going to say, that's not so. No, it's not true. But hi. <laughs> I had, hi. Hap- when you said happy holidays, or well, I, th- I heard like jingle bells going in my head. Lots of ching, 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 ching. <laughs> well, tis the season. I'm sure by Yay. now we... By the time everyone hears this, everyone's already going to be sick of Christmas tunes, <laughs> except for those strange people that enjoy them. Oh, us weirdos <laughs> out here. <laughs> yes. I haven't started them yet. We're recording this, obviously, before it's released, but um, we're getting close. Getting close. Well, I hope everyone has hap- a happy holiday and a happy new year. But before we go any further, I want to first thank everyone for tuning in. We certainly do appreciate it. Orphan Entertainment is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, if you have the option to do so, rate and review the show. It really does help get the show out to more people. Another great way to help is just by sharing the episode you're listening to on whatever social media platform you use. If you are a Facebook user, there is a group that you can join. This is a great place to find out what we're going to be covering next. And it's an easy place to leave any comments on the films or episodes. We do have a YouTube channel as well, where you can watch many of the films we have covered here on the show. Just search for Orphan Entertainment. A strong thank you to our over 3,000 subscribers. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. All these links can be found on our webpage, orphanedentertainment.com. With that, let's listen to a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we may find out why in 1931, the lady refuses. Another five-minute mystery. Chef. Morning, Deputy. Ted just called in and said he'd be late. Springfield bus from Cleveland broke down just outside of Cleveland and won't be in till 11 o'clock. Well, I guess you and I can handle what little business we get here in Springville until then. Oh, Sheriff's Office. Speaking. James Coburn shot. Be right there. Sheriff, the bullet entered his right temple just over the eye, passing through the head and made its exit from the back of the neck. I knew this would happen to James. You uh, knew this would happen, Miss Alice? Yes. You see, Sheriff, some man in Cleveland had attempted to blackmail James because of an earlier romance, and James had threatened to turn the blackmailer over to the police. Because of that, his life was threatened. I had him come here to Springville to hide out for a while. Deputy, uh... Have any strange men been reported in town the last few days, or have you seen any suspicious characters that might have been trying to locate James Coburn? Oh, haven't heard of a soul, except some bum that must have dropped off a freight. 
A short, swarthy-looking guy. That sounds just like the Cleveland man. James described him to me one day. Don't recall anyone saying he'd inquired about Coburn. Hmm. James always seemed like a pretty upright man to me. Oh, James was a very quiet man, Sheriff. He was just unfortunate enough to have been tied up with this affair in his youth. And then this... This gangster had to try a shakedown on him and ruin all our happiness. We... We were to be married. We were going to be married tomorrow and go to Cincinnati to live. James had a job offered him there. I'm sorry. This has been a shock to you then. Yes, it has, Sheriff. James had written me last week. He asked me to come on the 8.30 bus today. Then we were going on to Cincinnati this afternoon. Oh, I was so happy. I packed all my things and left Cleveland on the bus early this morning. I rushed right out here only to... to find him dead. Oh, if only he'd gone to Cincinnati months ago as I begged him. It would have been just the same, Miss Alice. Well, it couldn't have been. He'd have been safe there. No. No, you'd have tracked him there and murdered him just like you did here. Do you know why the sheriff accused Alice of murdering James Coburn? In just a moment, we shall find out. But first... Hello. Ahoy. My name is Adam. And I'm Nick. And this is the Bottom of the Stream podcast. A never-ending quest to find hidden movie gems on Netflix. (laughs) Uh, Every week we watch a random movie that we find on the stream and we talk about it for about an hour. Uh, Yeah, as well as that, we round up the news of the week and uh, we usually mention what we've been watching at the top of the stream. Yeah, so if you're into Netflix and you enjoy watching stuff on there, give us a listen. Join us aboard our podcast boat as we navigate the perilous water. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And now for the solution to our mystery. Alice, James Coburn was shot by someone facing him as he sat in the chair. Obviously someone from whom he didn't fear violence, therefore not a man. You were the blackmailer if anyone was, Alice. He probably laughed at your threat today, went back to reading, and you shot him. You said that you arrived this morning at 8.30 on the bus from Cleveland. You couldn't have. That bus broke down, and one of my own deputies is still stranded outside of Cleveland on that bus. Come along. Lady Refuses is a 1931 pre-code melodrama directed by George Arkenbaud. Boy, you just don't get names like that anymore. <laughs> no. It stars Betty Compson as June, a desperate young woman on the verge of becoming a prostitute. When she fears she is going to get picked up by a couple of policemen, she knocks on the door of a well-to-do home. The owner, Sir Gerald Courtney, played by Gilbert Emery, takes pity on her and concocts a story that she is his niece and invites her in. After dining together, he learns of her situation and what it was driving her to and asks to hire her to try and distract his son, Russell, away from his current flame, a gold-digging woman named Berthine Waller. Sometime later, Russell, played by John Darrow, meets June while he is in a drunken stupor. Unknown to him, this meeting was all arranged by her and his father. It isn't long before June has the desired effect and Russell turns over a new leaf, working harder, drinking less, and forgetting about Berthine. 
Complications arise when Sir Gerald admits that he has fallen in love with June as well, and the revelation looks to drive a permanent wedge between father, son, and the woman they both love. I'm so used to hearing Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. I had a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Compson is best known for her performances in The Docks of New York, a 1928 silent film, and The Barker, a part talkie from the same year that garnered her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. Compson, like many actors of the day, was originally a vaudeville performer before being discovered by producer Al Christie. Her first film was in 1915, Wanted, a Leading Lady, and she made 25 films in 1916, and all but one feature were short films for Christie. She continued this busy pace until eventually she appeared in a fewer short films and was doing full feature films almost exclusively. She signed a five-year deal with Paramount in 1919. This popularity allowed her to establish her own production company at this time. Her first film as producer was the 1921 film Prisoners of Love, where she also starred. At the end of her contract with Paramount, the studio refused to grant her a raise in her salary, so she left and went to work for a studio in London, England. She starred in four films, directed by a well-known British filmmaker Graham Cutts, the first of which, Women to Women, was was co-written by Cutts and Alfred Hitchcock. These films were received well enough that Paramount finally agreed to offer top dollar for her return to the studio. By 1930, her contract was again not renewed, and Compson worked freelance, making films for Columbia and MGM. Her career flourished until, she, until it didn't, and she began working in several Poverty Row films. She shot a Technicolor screen test for the role of Belle Watling in 1939's Gone with the Wind, but obviously was not cast. In 1941, Compson appeared in a small role in an Alfred Hitchcock film, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Compson's last film was in 1948's Here Comes Trouble, before she retired from film and began a cosmetic line and helped her husband, Sylvius Gall, run his business. I was very surprised to see the information about her starting a production company. Yeah, that actually was interesting to me, too. I didn't realize, I mean, I 1920s. Guess, yeah. I, that's blew me away I, well I had found well I read that during the height of her career she was making $5,000 a week which in the 1920s was almost $70,000 a week in today's money like it's just an insane also ironically the same amount of money that she agrees to get Gerald's son away from his current girlfriend for <laughs> she was actually making every week at some point in her film career it's just an incredible amount of money for for somebody that frankly I'd never heard of before yes there was not a name usually in these films there's somebody that you're somewhat familiar with mm-hmm. even if it's one of the smaller roles uh maybe it's someone we've seen before in another film or mm-hmm. someone we knew this one Nothing. Yeah. John Darrow, the only thing I could find, he was in Hell's Angels, directed by Howard Hughes, of course, known for its flame, its plane scenes. But yeah, I didn't, I, I felt like I had seen Gilbert Emery somewhere, but I couldn't place him. And when I looked through his list, I couldn't find anything that I thought I'd seen before. So for, for her to have been such a obviously remarkably well-known person before talkies became a big thing, it is interesting that that we didn't hear more of her afterwards, or I, I guess today that we didn't hear more of her today. Well, and maybe it's because um, 
I mean, she kind of retired relatively early mm-hmm. in the talkies. I mean, by what nineteen the nineteen forties, she was she put it to bed and did didn't act anymore, and that's when you know Hollywood really started to take off. Well, and she has kind of an interesting look. I would not call mm-hmm. her a classic beauty. There's something about her mouth; it's kind of off center or something. Oh, it's kind of crooked, but. She, she, not to say she's not an attractive woman, but I don't think she looks like the person, the people, the women that became really popular in the late thirties and in the forties. She doesn't have the same look as them in the twenties. Yeah. She's right on spot for that. Oh yeah. She's definitely got the, the look and the appearance of a twenties and thirties kind of flapper girl mm-hmm. kind of quality. That big, big doughy eyes and very blonde hair. Uh, yes. <laughs> she's really entertaining to watch. She's she, I love her character and personality. And then looking into her a little bit, she had a reputation for being a really tough negotiator. So I feel like her character in this movie is not far off of her personality in real life. She seems to have been a very uh, strong-willed and confident woman, but she comes across as very likable for it. Yeah. Well, I think uh, in real life, she must have been. If she was going to be a woman in the 1920s and run a doing her own, <laughs> run her own production yeah. house, exactly. Um, I'd be really curious to see some other films that came out of that production house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just curious to see how, I guess, how forward thinking maybe those films were, if, the, if at all. Mm-hmm. You know, being run by a woman, were they a little bit more woman centric? Well, I've, I, lately in watching modern films, I've noticed more and more that the actors in them are producing their own movies. And so I think she was probably ahead of her time there. I, I haven't looked into her production company at all, but it's, I think, not... It, I think it's something a lot of people do now where they'll start a production company so they can produce the movies they want to be in. And I wonder right. if that isn't similar to how she started hers. Right. And then, of course, it looks like that didn't last forever and she did you know still work for, for studios and go freelance and eventually like i said you know her career was great until it wasn't yeah. you know she was working <laughs> for the major studios and then suddenly oh she's doing stuff for the little tiny studios mm-hmm. yeah so strange not sure um why her career took those routes i didn't see anything there was no scandals or anything that i saw I mean, reading between the lines, having read a couple of biographies lately from this time period, I get uh, the very strong impression that if you didn't do exactly what the studios wanted you to, and if you pushed back on your salary, they just boot you out. They had, you know, 20,000 people lined up that, especially during this time frame, which is Mm -hmm. 1929 was the collapse of Wall Street, and then 1930 was the beginning of the true Great Depression you know, they it cost them nothing to just kick somebody out of the studio the next day. So it wouldn't surprise me, especially if she was uh, as bold as she seems from this character, that she probably just lost favor by not just you know, Who needs being you? a good dog. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> by rolling over and letting him pet the tummy kind of thing. Right. So uh, interesting. She seems like she had a really interesting life. Interesting that I think her, I read that her husband and she started an ashtray company. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was. Ashtrays Unlimited, yeah. I think, was his company. <laughs> Which up until the 70s when she passed away, I mean, big business for a, a long time, I think. That's true. But also interesting, I, uh, I you probably ran across this tidbit that her father left the family when she was very young. I think when she was just a few months old and mm. supposedly went up to the Klondike to try and look for gold and actually struck it rich. Uh, I think they ended. He ended up coming back with about twenty five thousand dollars, which nice. uh, would be a quarter of a million, half a million dollars today. Yeah, so that's probably. that's pretty decent money for that yeah. for that time period. Uh, but but what an interesting life! She grew up doing violin acts for vaudeville, and um, I think she had a double act with her mother for a little while, and then went into movies and then ashtrays. Like you do. It's a natural progression. (laughs) Very interesting lady. Talk a little bit about this film. I touched on it with the synopsis and everything, but this is the strangest romance I think I've ever watched because (laughs) most of the romance apparently takes place off screen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think that... Yeah. Okay, expound. I'd like... (laughs) I started to answer you, but I'd like to know more about your thought. (laughs) Well, we see a lot of of June and Russell mm-hmm. doing their thing. You know, they're they're going out to dinner. They're they're having their little parties. They're having their little meetings in their in their apartments. And they're you know you see their budding relationship. Sir Gerald, however, we barely see past him actually kind of engaging June. Mm-hmm. For this little plot and making her over, there's got to be a makeover scene. <laughs> yes, there's a. Very, it's like it's like Pretty Woman. It's always got to be a makeover scene. <laughs> we don't see much of him until he's confessing his love for her. Yeah, I think, and she for him. Yeah, one little car ride late at night, but you are uh, get the idea for, or the impression from that that they see each other somewhat regularly, if only for June to check in and tell him what a problem. Exactly. Is. I mean, it's it's a. Um, it's implied that they are meeting in order to continue their plot to save Russell. Mm-hmm. And they, they even reference at one point, we had agreed, we always agreed that we would tell him at some point, even though we never right. see that until she mentions it. Yeah. So there's a lot apparently that goes on off screen that would actually bring these two to fall in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And we don't see it. <laughs> it's just, oh, and, and they're in love. Oh, Okay. I mean, anytime you plot together with somebody to manipulate one of your relatives, it really ble- brings you together, you know? I mean, <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> that's how I got my guy. No, <laughs> not true. But <laughs> all the relationships in this are just a little bit odd. Honestly, one of the best relationships, I think, <laughs> is between Dobbs and Sir Gerald. <laughs> Dobbs, really? You're, you're downright Victorian. You must have cocktails, Dobbs. Cocktails. Not cocktails, sir. Yes. Now, don't tell me that it isn't British. You're deplorably behind the times. I drink them myself. And what's more, I can mix them. Mix is the word. They tell me they even put ice in them in America. Yes, well, uh, I don't think we'll go quite that far. I thought you were going to say uh, between um, Russell and his bottle. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the lunch. That was a very intimate relationship, <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. That guy cannot hold his liquor. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> He's only a little tight. <laughs> no, I, lo- I I agree. It's We start off with Dobbs and Sir Gerald. Dobbs is so great. I think Dobbs is my, <laughs> he is my, like, he's like my favorite character of this film. He's, he, he's a good butler. I love yes. when, when, uh, Russell says, oh, you know, that, that old ailment's not bothering you too much in this rain. And Dobbs just says, thank you, sir. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't answer whether it is or not. He just says, thank yes. you, sir. <laughs> he's the perfect British butler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is interesting. That's a point. This movie obviously is meant to take place in England. London. Yeah, in yeah. London. But I, the accents are, I'm going to use a word, and if it's an offensive word, I apologize, but I want to call them squiffy. <laughs> They're not quite on point. No, I mean, Sir Gerald, maybe. I mean, certainly acts British and maybe he's got some accent, but I didn't pick up much in the way of accent from John Darrow, but maybe he's not supposed to be. I got the impression that maybe Russell had studied abroad. Maybe he had studied in the States because there's the whole thing about the, the cocktails. cocktails and yeah. it... <laughs> I mean, certainly I, I would buy that without any argument. He's, you know, uh, it starts off with Sir Gerald saying, you know, don't mention that we haven't seen him in two whole weeks. You know, if it had been two whole years, I think that'd be a stronger argument. I think it's interesting that they decided to cast this, film this movie it, as if it's in England when the, the plot would have worked anywhere. Uh, right. It, and they have a lot of straight, like awkward Britishisms that if you had a girl, that I feel like it was written for a girl with a real Cockney accent. Um, and because she uses some phrases that are very kind of kind of gutter terminologies, <laughs> not really proper English, very improper English, very kind of you know blue collar terms, but they come across as just strange because Betty doesn't really oh sorry Betty <laughs> because June, June doesn't yeah. have that right, that British accent. And she, when she does have a bit of a British twang, because it is a British twang, it's, it comes across with, with the, with those words, it comes across very, very awkward. So I feel like this was written for a real kind of gutter snipe character and they really wanted Betty for it. And so when they cast her as June, they were, they didn't adjust the, dialogue at all they really should have adjusted the dialogue and maybe just gone ahead and maybe they maybe they felt like they had to have it based in england because street walkers weren't regularly chased off the streets in the united states yeah i have no idea because you're right this could have easily just been placed in new york mm-hmm. or boston and, or chicago or maybe right not chicago, you just but anywhere. you just have you just have a, a rich powerful bachelor or, well, not Bachelor, I guess, Widower. <laughs> Hopefully not Bachelor. <laughs> yeah, Widower, I suppose. <laughs> For Russell's sake. <laughs> uh, he didn't need to be, you know, Sir anything. No, no, it is very straight. It, it is a bit odd. So, and, and, you know, especially with John Darrow in there, too, who, again, has that kind of squiffy English, heavy quotes English <laughs> accent it doesn't work at all and everybody else is is ha- fairly foreign Berthine and and her i assume he's sort of her pimp nikolai 
that was a very confusing relationship as well because like he was. kept acting like they were together mm-hmm. but she was anything but with him whenever she was with Russell mm-hmm. and him together and she told him outright you always get your cut so i think i think you're right i don't think it's a direct um <laughs> a directly managerial relationship but there's it, it brought to mind it brought to mind one of the thin man movies where one of the characters is a, a i think actually the very first thin man where the husband has left the wife for a younger woman but it turns out she's actually just using him for the money and she's got another guy on the side another fella on the side and I think it's that kind of relationship where the Berthine is this woman that goes from rich man to rich man, gets as much as she can, and then shares it with Nikolai. But mm. obviously he feels proprietary, proprietary about her, but is, you know, lax in his demands to a point. I don't know. It's very confusing because he does act extremely jealous, very which is an odd thing for somebody that... If that's if that's the setup that she has, that's a very odd attitude to take. Mm-hmm. You would think he'd be pushing her toward Russell instead of keeping her from smooching on him. But then the whole idea that they'd be sitting there at a at a table in a restaurant, and Russell just holds up the the napkin in between them, you're like, you don't mind, and he gives her a big kiss. I'm like. But wait, <laughs> so you're kissing on this guy's girlfriend. You- <laughs> I, I get the very distinct impression that Russell doesn't realize they're together. Uh, that he just thinks Nikolai and Berthine are just friends. And maybe maybe even feels like kind of proud of himself for maybe he feels like he got Berthine away from Nikolai. And, you know, now she's my girl kind of thing. Well, maybe Berthine is telling him the same thing that, you know, she's tries to tell Nikolai a few times, oh, we're not together anymore and mm-hmm. till they are because <laughs> Nikolai says they are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, interesting situation. I, I feel like there's that common theme in this type of movie where there's the gold digging woman, but then there's also a demanding man behind it. I was just reminded of another movie. I'm trying to remember which one it was. You, uh, Scarlet Street. Where... Oh, the one, yeah. I was just saying there, that sounds a little familiar yeah. uh, just from a few months ago. Yeah. yeah, Scarlet Street, similar kind of thing where the guy's got the fancy car because the girl is with the guy with a lot of money or the guy she thinks has a lot of money, who actually does in this case. I'd like to talk about Sir Gerald, specifically Gilbert Emery. I think he's fascinating. <laughs> he's interesting to watch. He's a character that um, has absolutely no clue about uh, anything. Well, I'm, I was thinking <laughs> personal space is definitely not something he's ever <laughs> paid much attention to. He's always leaning into people as the as he talks to them. Oh, interesting. I actually hadn't noticed that. Well, I noticed it because that's the sort of thing that would really bug me. (laughs) I was thinking more along the lines of uh, he's the sort of guy that went into the military young because he was supposed to and comes out and has no idea about relationships or how to raise Mm. a child or how to talk to a woman or or how to, you know, he he married the he seems like somebody that married the girl his parents told him to marry. I was going to say probably probably an arranged marriage. Yeah. And then when she died, he had a son and. 
and let his son do whatever he wanted because that's what his parents let him do up to a point. So it's, it's an interesting, he's an interesting character. It particularly has, he gets so flustered. He walks into the ladies' changing room on accident when they're doing the whole makeover scene. Oh, hey. I, I beg your pardon, I really do. Uh, this way, Sir Joe, please. Oh, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I had no idea that... Oh, come in, Jerry. I didn't think they made bashful men anymore. But, uh... And you haven't said a word about this. Well, it's, it's, it's fairly breathtaking. Uh, stunning. I, I, I mean to say, stunning. <laughs> and then he walks into the room that June is... He walks into, you know, the model's room, which was the thing back then where... Instead of having a magazine, you'd go to a nice boutique and they would have models actually try the outfits on. And you could see what they looked like on a moving woman, on a moving figure. So he goes to go into the dressing room where she's at and gets in the wrong one, hustles out again quickly, and then goes in the one she's in and gets flustered and still again. still bashful. Which is funny because I suppose she's supposed to be in a negligee, but it's extremely modest it looks to me i i actually thought it was just another gown it like a i think it was just a gown. gown because she even mentions that this you do you think this will you know, woo our our young man mm-hmm. so i think this is just an evening gown i i have no well it, i think it's the same dress that she is wear or the same outfit i should say that she's wearing the morning that uh russell wakes up in her apartment mm. which makes me think and since he's so flustered by it it makes me think that it is you know, a, a 1920s version of a, a wealthy lady's nightdress, which is still, by our standards, very modest. It's possibly, or it's just that it's just that glamorous of a gown, and Sir Gerald is so out of touch that <laughs> <laughs> he probably has not seen a girl in a modern. He probably hasn't seen a girl in a dress since about 1912. So yeah, <laughs> yes, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> that's a fair enough assessment. But yeah, I, I like his flusteredness, but. I'm a little bit sad that, I mean, this movie's 70 minutes long, and I'm a little bit sad that we don't see a little bit more of them, you know, talking about Russell and talking about the strategy she's going to take. They certainly make the point of showing that she's thinking very quickly on the fly. And when they are together, when uh, Sir Gerald and June are together, they're fun together. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, she calls him Jerry. Mm-hmm. For one, which yeah. I think is cute, because <laughs> <laughs> he's he's Sir Gerald Courtney. I mean, even the police know that he's oh, well, that's Sir Gerald Courtney, and mm-hmm. you know he's a well, very well to do. People know who he is; mm-hmm. they respect him. And she runs around calling him Jerry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I which think is, that's I, just, I feel like that's it's kind of adorable. Yeah, that's part of that kind of gutter snipe persona that they wrote. Sure, and then it it carries over well. But yeah, <laughs> their relationship is very. I think very unique. Certainly she's not the kind of woman that he's ever met before. You get the impression he's not the sort of man that goes to brothels and things like that. No, no, of course not. So Russell, the you know, the son of Sir Gerald here, we in, we we're introduced to him early on as the partier. He's partying with a Berthine. He comes to what Sir Gerald thinks is dinner, but Russell's like, Ah, I I, I can't. I got this other engagement. <laughs> Welcome to the family heart. Hello, father. Nasty night out, eh? What a fog. Yeah. Thicker than mutton broth. <laughs> Hello, Dobbs. How's the old aches and twinges this weather? Thank you, sir. 
Awfully nice of you, my boy, to dare the farm just for an evening with your aged male parents. There's nothing I'd like better. Meanwhile, what price a cocktail? Yes, Dobbs was shocked at that. Dobbs? Where's the old training? Take Mr. Russell's coat and hat. You're surprised, aren't you, that I know about cocktails? You know, I'd learned from a barman at the Savoy. He used to live in Chicago. Allow me, sir. Uh, thanks, Dobbs, but don't bother. I've got to be popping off directly. You're not stopping for dinner, then? Uh, I'm terribly sorry, Father, but uh, when I promised you to come, I overlooked another engagement. Well, it's, uh, it's quite all right, of course. Only I'd hoped, uh, well, it can't be helped, can it? I mean to say one does have other engagements, of course. I know it seems fairly awful. Let's have luncheon together tomorrow. We'll have a good old-fashioned reunion. And you can scold me in a good old-fashioned way. And we see, for the most part, him drunk for the next, you know, 20 minutes <laughs> of the film. Yeah, you... I think June calls him dear boy an awful lot and certainly treats him like a petulant child for as old as he is, uh, early twenties, at least he is every bit the petulant child. And I, I, it was really funny when I was watching this the first time I had, I had, I thought how interesting that the plot to failure to launch actually was done first in 1931. (laughs) It's not quite the plot of Failure to Launch, but it's extremely similar. You know, a man hires a woman to try and get his son to grow up and start living like a man instead of like a, you know, partying child. <laughs> and it's, it is, it's funny because it's that's a theme that we think is hilarious today, but I don't think that I would have realized it was a theme in the 1930s where you had these, you know, poor little rich kids, I suppose. But Russell is almost unbelievable in his level of... Well, I maybe I just know really responsible people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, something you mentioned, you're talking about the way uh, June talks to Russell. It's a little difficult to gauge. I would have certainly have pegged them to be about the same age. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I also would wonder, is she supposed to be older not as old as Sir Gerald, certainly, mm-hmm. but maybe 10 years older or something than, than Russell? I think that's a really good question. She certainly is supposed to be more world-wise, mm-hmm. more worldly than he is, but they they don't establish that. It's there. There are a few questions left hanging in this movie where... You know, I suppose if you're just going out for for a night to enjoy an hour at the cinema and you don't really care that much who's older and who's younger and you're just looking for a light romantic comedy, this fits the bill. But their relationship is, I I think I, this is a a good example of what I mean by her, her vocabulary doesn't quite seem to suit her accent. There are things she says that I felt like if she had a real heavy cockney accent, you would take for granted that she was just a woman of the world. Not necessarily a woman of the streets, but certainly a woman of the world, which she implies she is early on in the movie. And the way she talks to Russell is as if she is a woman of the world. But with Betty Compson, she's got kind of almost this kind of baby face and this very young, almost high-pitched voice. And then the accent is 
pseudo refined American English ish, <laughs> very ish. And it, it, the whole thing it becomes very confusing. I think it'd be interesting to go back through this and just dub it over with a woman with a real heavy Cockney accent and see if the <laughs> film doesn't play completely differently. I feel like it really would. Something out of My Fair Lady. <laughs> yeah, or uh, I mentioned earlier I've been going through the TV show Harlots, so maybe that's you know tinting my <laughs> opinion here a little bit, but there certainly are some accents in that that I think would have fit the, the dialogue in this movie a little more. It's just the way she, she talked to him and even talked about him, even with uh, Gerald. There are times where she's, oh, well, he's a good boy. It, it, it's the type of something that uh, like a teacher would say to, about her student or mm -hmm. something like that. Exactly. And so, yeah, it was throwing me off a little bit exactly how old June was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. If she were a little older, even five, ten years older, they would also sort of make her relationship with Gerald maybe sit a little easier. Uh, not with me. I mean, age is a number. I don't care. He could be 50 and she could be 20. That's fine. But <laughs> I just wonder, 1931, I mean, I guess that's actually probably would be even more acceptable then mm -hmm. because we wouldn't question that's the way things were. Yes. Yeah. Older man, younger woman, but, totally acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I don't know. It was just, uh, it was interesting. I just couldn't quite play place where she was supposed to fit in between them. So here's my challenge. Watch it again, and this time pretend she's got just a real heavy Cockney accent and see if it doesn't all make sense. I think it would. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of her terminologies would make more sense with a kind of, um, what's the word I want? A uh, kind of, if she were kind of looking down on him as if he were just an innocent kid. You're, you're just innocent. Mm -hmm. You don't know as much about the ways of the world. She even says that to Gerald. There are two times when no one can advise a man. The first is when he's drinking too much. The other is when he loves the wrong woman. Is that bar even a father? Especially a father. You know, you make me feel very inexperienced. As if you knew a lot more about life and things than I. Oh, I do. A great deal more. About life and men and women. Particularly men. Hmm. You might uh, advise me. Might? There's even moments, especially towards the end, where she changes kind of personas, where yeah. June, as we, as we see her through... In the beginning, she's very subdued and she's, you know, very nervous and somewhat embarrassed, but also, hey, I'm going to have to do what I'm going to have to do, you know, when she's talking to Gerald. Mm -hmm. Then when she meets Russell, she's, of course, portraying a much more, supposedly much more refined person. You and know, flirty. she's a, a, mm -hmm. a flirty, a socialite, you know, mm -hmm. something like that. And then towards the end, when she's trying to um, try to set everybody straight or trying to get Russell to you know, man up a little bit. And, you know, she goes like, that's right. And she, she gets very rough. <laughs> and, um, yes. And to get what you were talking, very, like you would, uh, you would expect the, coarse. uh, very coarse. Yes. Coarse. Yes. Very much. And that's where I think you, you get a lot of that. She's wise beyond her years sort of thing, or mm -hmm. she, she's seen stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, she certainly is playing at being that kind of woman, you know, Oh, I took him for every penny. He's 
got. Ha ha, you and your sucker father, you know, that kind of right. thing. Right. Which is funny because it, it seems very out of character for her at the moment if they weren't, ex- you know, if it weren't clearly showing that she's trying to hurt his feelings. Mm-hmm. It, w- it wouldn't make any sense. It almost feels like that's sort of the personality that she should have had, but a little sweeter. And then when she, but when she goes so over the top with it, it's actually kind of funny. I thought, man, if I were talking to somebody and they all of a sudden put on that voice, I'd be like, wait, what's happening? Wait, uh, right. Are you, yes. are you doing a skit? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, so she's, she's a woman that, that puts on airs throughout the film. You almost wish there was some, even a throwaway line or something about how she used to be an actress or something yeah, like that. Something to explain. Well, and I can see how there's the progression of her being the scared young woman, woman, presumably young, you know, out her first night on the street, worried about being able to eat the next day. And then she goes to, okay, I, now I have a guaranteed paycheck coming my way. If I just do my job well, I just got to do my job well. And then she, you know, oh no, I, now I've really hurt this person's feelings and they're not a bad person. I didn't mean to hurt them. Well, now I really have to hurt them to make it so that you know, this isn't, he doesn't revert to the way that he was before or whatever. Like you can see a progression and a growth with, with her, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. You don't, it doesn't feel like she's just this scared, timid person the whole movie and then suddenly flips. There is a growth through it. Um, I think there's just some inconsistency with the, I like <laughs> at that particular moment, she just suddenly turns it up to 11 where she's been at a five <laughs> up until now. You know, she starts yes. off at a two and then grows to a five. And then all of a sudden she's at 11 and then she's back to a five again. And it's kind of like that moment is they, I think maybe over dealt, maybe over directed, you know, Hey, you have to really put it on. The audience really has to know that you're really faking it to the point that it almost loses its believability because anybody that were in the, was in the room with her would go, wait, wait, why are you talking like that? That's really weird. That's an interesting phrase you, you said, over-directed. And I think that maybe shows itself at a few other moments, too. There's, there's a scene where Russell and Berthine and everyone's at some club. Mm-hmm. And Russell's going to pour champagne. And the people around him are just way too obvious in the, we're acting drunk. <laughs> I actually was super nervous at the beginning of this movie with the two police officers when they come up and Sir Gerald says, yes, what is it that you want? And the guy, when I think his, I think this is a pretty close quote. Well, sir, it is, uh, ahem, uh, sir, you see the way it is. My dear girl, we were worried about oh. you. Camping about in this farm. Why on earth didn't you take a taxi? Oh. Uh, yes, well, uh, officers, what is it? <coughs> come, come, uh, what's all this about? You see, sir, uh, we thought she was a... Uh, <coughs> uh, we thought, my lord, that she, uh, that is, we thought, I mean... Uh, uh, we thought that she got lost in the fog, uh, didn't we, Albert? Oh, yes, uh, lost in the fog. That's what we thought. <laughs> and I went... I'm not going to get through this movie. Oh, there's no way. (laughs) It's so bad acting. You're talking about that scene. That's actually something that carries throughout the film. It's in the synopsis. It's, I I mentioned it. She's looking to perhaps turn to prostitution in order to make a living. Mm -hmm. Nowhere at no point in the film is the word prostitute spoken. Right. The police officers don't say it. Mm -hmm. Gerald doesn't say it. June Russell doesn't can't. say it. 
Yep. Russell doesn't say it. No one says it. The closest we get is when uh, Russell is having his tantrum towards the end. Mm-hmm. There's words spoken, but it's always dancing around, actually saying something like tramp or... Yeah, and Gerald even inter- interrupts him before he gets to the moment when he would say that word. Yes. Just don't say that word. Before he's even said the word, before he it's even could have said so the word. It's so bizarre. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I always struggle with that type of, it's not, I don't have a problem with them avoiding that word. There are, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of very well scripted scenes. Lady, the Lady Eve always pops to mind when he goes to show her his snake and it frightens her because she thinks he's not talking about a snake. And then it is a snake. And she says, you know, well, how am I supposed to expect a perfectly reasonable man to show me? And then he interrupts, well, I thought you understood. How could I understand? You know, there is dialogue where this type of scene happens and it's either super engaging, really funny, very tense. And this movie fails in every one of those attempts. Every time they try to have a witty back and forth where a person doesn't quite get a word out, it just fails as a scene. Is listed as like a pre-code. It is 1931, so it would be officially pre-code, but it is like they were trying to dance around a censor. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can imply it, we just can't say it. <laughs> but I feel like the script is that way. And, and whether the script was written understanding that there were codes that were going to be coming into effect and they wanted to make sure that they didn't offend somebody, or whether it was just the sensibility of the writer, I feel like this would be a really interesting script to go back and maybe, oh gosh, I just had a really interesting idea, be interesting to go back and do this movie as a radio play and actually have it well acted. Mm. <laughs> Throw in June is a Cockney accent put people in that actually have real British accents, police officers that can act and don't stammer horrifically on the stoop and see if it doesn't come across as a much better script than it feels because of the, it, I read that this director is originally a French director. I wonder if this is an issue of the director not having a solid handle on the language. A little lost in translation. Yep. Where, oh, it's funny because the situation, but the reality is, no, it's it's not really funny because the situation, it's funny because of the dancing around the word. But if you don't know what the right pacing for the dialogue, the scene's going to fall flat. And I feel like the pacing of the dialogue is what really suffers throughout this whole movie. Yes. No, I think I would uh, I would agree because there's just some, sometimes the just, you think and just spit it out. Yes. <laughs> or... or- or or, or vice or 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 vice versa, mm-hmm. say something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Took it took a little while to work around to it, but I do think it's the, the dialogue pacing is the worst part of this movie. <laughs> Why is that such a relief? <laughs> I found myself in this film actually being really kind of attracted to just really simple things, just because of the era of the time. There's the moment when uh, Russell realizes that he's made a luncheon date with his father, but Berthine says, oh, no, you're eating lunch with me tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to, to go call his father and to let her know that he's going to go do it. 
you're so used to seeing people doing the, the, the two fingers up to your head to the yes. phone call. Yeah. He does the, he cups his ear with one hand yeah. and then holds the other hand out like he's holding an old candlestick phone. I'm like, well, but of course, yeah. that makes so much sense. And I would have never thought that there would be a different sort of silent, I'm making yeah. a phone call. Well, the funny part is, even today, you and I understood that. Like, we yes. knew, I'm going to go make a phone call because we know what those phones were like. Yeah. There's so much of that in this movie where the the visual cues are spot on. Mm-hmm. They're even at the point where Nikolai is and Berthine are in Russell's apartment. And they're waiting for him to come back. And, and Berthine is getting really freaked out. Nikolai reaches into his pocket. And I don't know if he pulls out a gun or a knife he or does. what he pulls out. Okay, I, I, it I was a gun. It was just, a gun. It's, it's just most of it. It's barely in frame. Right. But you'd see it briefly that he's got a revolver. It feels, again, like they're very careful. They don't want to show too much. You know, yes. You never hear a gunshot. Nothing like that. And But... but the motions of the individuals in that scene are perfectly shown. So the more we talk, the more convinced I become that the director just didn't get the dialogue. It was a language barrier where he just didn't understand. The, it, it's like the movie that we watched directed by the German guy about the dancer. You guys are screaming. Oh, um, blue. Blah. Yeah, blue uh, yes. something. <laughs> that one. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Everybody Can't listening was... is going, this, this is the name, this is the name. But it, I felt like that was the same thing. I feel like the English translation of that came across wrong because the dialogue pacing was a little bit off. I could be misrecalling. But... I'll, I'll give you a, another scene that I, I pick something up and it's even more subtle. And it, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's so subtle that it's either not what it means or it's exactly what it means. <laughs> Again, between uh, Nikolai and Berthine, mm-hmm. they're at her apartment or his apartment or wherever. I guess it's her apartment. He's sitting there and he's given her grief about about Russell. I think it was right after she had called him for the upteenth million time. And he's and, not answering. And gotten no answers. Mm-hmm. And Nikolai's talking to her. You are still in love with him, my precious. But remember, you still have me. How can I forget it? If you do... It will be just deplorable. The woman who tries to make the fool out of me. Do you know what I would do? And she takes her hand and just gently like puts it against her side of her face. And it's kind oh. of like, ooh, like you would do, like you're remembering a really good smack. Interesting. Because, yeah, I, I just thought of that as that kind of quaint 1920s pantomime of shock. But no, yeah, the way, the way she put be, it to the side of yeah. her head, the side of her face, it's like pff, he's hit her before. Wow. He's, yeah. Yeah. I didn't he's read it beat that her. way, but that yeah. makes sense. So that's what I mean. So that's either very subtle or I'm Spot totally on. making it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I think there's a good argument for this being well-directed physically, but very poorly directed dialogue-wise. I don't think there's anything wrong inherently with the dialogue, which is why I propose that somebody take this movie, take the script, and make it into a radio play, well acted out, and see right. if it really is just a bad script. I don't think it is. but uh, Maybe I not. I think it gets a little thing. overly complicated towards the end when you get the uh, uh, Russell being accused of Berthine's murder mm-hmm. and him not wanting to tell people that he was in June's apartment that night and... Yeah, there would have to be some adjustment for radio. Yeah, 
it it just gets uh it's 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 a little overcomplicated with everybody trying to like not involve somebody else and then but I don't okay I, I I'm going to involve this okay the the person comes in and it, it becomes involved but then everyone's like oh so you are really just a, a oh no she's not oh what <laughs> you know, you get whiplash yeah. in the last twenty minutes of the film here this is but this is exactly my argument I I really want to know if that's because of a because of a scripting error or if it's because of a direction error. And I suspect it's a direction error. I really think it is. I, I think so too. I don't think it's the actors. I think the actors are all pretty pretty awesome in this. With the exception of the police. <laughs> 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 Who I feel like it was somebody's cousin yeah, or nephew or something. And They were the oof. comic relief uh, police bobbies. The painful yeah. comic relief. Yeah. Not not very well not very well done. <laughs> But again, that dialogue pacing ruins it. The tough part, I think, for me, is when it comes down to rating this film. Mm. It's one of these movies where I feel like I have to give it that that like dreaded three. <laughs> because it's it's not a bad film. I don't think you should avoid it. It's just nothing you should seek out because... It just is. It exists. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can see that. I think it's it's a movie that I want to be more... I want to like it more than I do. There are parts of it that I think... They, I think there are parts of it that other movies are more successful with. I think that the love triangle, the, the father-son-woman love triangle, it's definitely done in some other films... But I like the premise of this one. I like her being brought in to try and get the son away from a gold digger. Yes. Uh, I, I like the theme of the son becoming responsible because he gets it in his head that he's gonna, this woman's going to make an honest man out of him. You know. And I like the theme of the probably younger woman falling for the older man, seeing how much he loves his son and how kind he is and how gentle he is. Um, the the movie in my head, I would give four or five stars. <laughs> four yes. or five Othels too. No, no, I agree. But the movie, the movie you want the, this to be. Yeah. yeah. Yes. There, that's, uh, you know, the, the one where she's actually got a Cockney accent. <laughs> <laughs> and they actually are British. <laughs> you know, the one... <laughs> Well, gosh, now let's see. Who would I cast <laughs> if we were remaking this today? Oh, there's an interesting thought. Uh, but I, I would, I would like this movie to be better than it is. I love, uh, I love Dobbs, you know, too. In this, I think that the, there's so much potential for comedy there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, gra- I'm grateful that they didn't drag it out or make it too silly the way we see in other films do. But there's yeah. a little bit of, of physical humor. With Dobbs, it, it's funny. It's very subtle. It's facial expression humor, which I appreciate. Or even him just uh, taking a quick sniff of the brandy. Yes. <laughs> when he sets it out. Yeah. Yep. Or the long turnarounds when he's told to take it back or not take it back. But I think I think in this is an oddly accurate case of the three Othels being the right rating because there is potential for a better movie. But it also isn't a horrible movie. Uh, it, they didn't just completely destroy it, but they also, there really was room for improvement. The, the storyline isn't bad, 
but the dialogue pacing is poor. The physical action is good, and the acting, the actors are well cast, I think, but there are some gaps in the storyline. <laughs> so yeah. it really is, I think, I think three is the right rating because it's, it's middle of the road. It's not, it's not a three because we didn't love it and we didn't hate it. That, to me, is a two or even a one in some cases. This is really, truly a three because there's so many different reasons that it could have been better or could or was made a little worse. Or, you know? Yeah, it so, literally is. It's, I like it, I didn't love it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. And I, if they had done two or three things differently, I would like it a lot more. Right. But if they do, two, if they'd done those same two or three things differently, negatively, I would like it a lot less. I don't think there's anything else to say <laughs> about the lady refuses, other than I'm not entirely sure what the title meant. <laughs> I, I guess because she refuses something at the end. Maybe. And you know, without telling everybody too much about it. I suppose that, I suppose that's an argument in favor of watching it. If you haven't seen this movie, it'd be very interesting to know what you think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd love, I'd love to hear other people's opinions on it. And, and I really want to hear what everybody thinks about my idea of casting somebody with a real strong Cockney accent. Tell me what yes. you think. <laughs> this is my personal, my personal yes. request. Do, does this film need an Eliza Doolittle? Does it? <laughs> that's, the, that's the question. Although, although to be clear, I would never ever cast Eliza Doolittle in this role. <laughs> never. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for the lady refuses. As always, thank you very much for listening. And Lydia, thank you very much for coming on and talking about the film. Thank you. And everybody have a happy new year. Be safe. And we look forward to uh, giving you the opportunity to listen to us again next year. Absolutely. <laughs> That's going to do it. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Jinx. <laughs>